All right, as we, uh, as we move into a time to hear God's word this morning, um, let's go to him in prayer. God in heaven, we take a moment, some time now to uh, quiet ourselves, to, to hear from your word. And God, they're, they're old words that have been handed down for a long time, uh, through many generations, through many people. Um, God, we've maybe heard them before, or maybe it's the first time. And God, we all have maybe different anticipations for this morning. Uh, maybe some of us are here for the first time, and we're kind of not sure where we are in this spiritual journey. Uh, maybe others of us are here, and this has always just been a part of who we are, and your grace has always been a part of our lives. So God, as we, as we open up this word, I pray that it's a word uh, from you, and that it's a word that is empowered by your Holy Spirit to, to change lives and so that your grace is heard throughout this world. And Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. His parents named him Irvin, but the world knew him as Magic. Irvin Magic Johnson was first nicknamed Magic after recording a staggering triple-double as just a sophomore at Everett High School in Lansing, Michigan. That nickname and that image of supernatural skill never left him. High school wins eventually led to a state championship. And a state championship was just groundwork for national collegiate title appearances. And with Magic's touch, national title appearances led to a national championship. With his lightning quick moves and his dazzling ability to make a pass, Magic Johnson was a no-brainer to be a first-round pick for the NBA draft. Uh, one of his fellow teammates, Michael Cooper, uh, once said, uh, there have been times when Magic has thrown passes and I wasn't even sure where they were going. Then one of our guys would catch the ball and score, and I would run back up the floor, convinced that he must have thrown it through someone. (laughs) Magic's ability to dazzle on the court led him to a rookie year NBA championship and MVP. And he would continue to wow the basketball world by ushering in four more championships for the Los Angeles Lakers throughout the 1980s. But the magic of Magic Johnson wasn't, it wasn't just limited to the basketball court. Uh, Magic had a a smile that would light up a room. Uh, He had a deep, roaring laugh that could echo throughout a party. He had a charm and a charisma that would capture you and just leave you hanging on every single word that came out of his mouth. People wanted to be near him. People wanted to touch him. People wanted to have their picture taken with him. Even his biggest on-court rivals could not resist his magnetic personality off the court. And then Magic Johnson had to uh, go in for a routine medical examination that came along with a life insurance policy. Some of you have maybe done this. You want a life insurance policy, so you go get a physical and you get a little blood work done just to make sure that you're healthy and well and that you are indeed insurable. A few days later, Magic's doctor called him up as he was sitting in a hotel room in Salt Lake City uh, preparing to play the Utah Jazz that night. And his doctor said, you need to come home immediately. It was news that his doctor wouldn't share over the phone. It was news that would startle the world. Magic Johnson had HIV. His career 
was cut short and everything for him began to change. Suddenly, all the people who wanted to be near him and to touch him and to take pictures with him were nowhere to be found. A a man who could, could hold the attention of an entire room with the utmost charm and charisma could no longer even find a room of people who wanted to be near him. Aspiring basketball players who would have given anything to beat magic on the court suddenly wouldn't even play a simple pickup game of basketball against him. When no one would even seriously join in a workout with him anymore, Magic said it was for the first time ever that he finally felt diseased. A few years ago, Vinicio Riva boarded a bus in northern Italy. And as he was walking towards the nearest empty seat, he was about to sit down, and the man adjacent to him looked at him and growled and said, Don't sit down. You cannot sit here. Vinicio recalls that there were a lot of people on the bus that day, but no one said anything, nor did anyone give up a seat for him. But Vinicio is is long accustomed to that sort of unkindness and that isolation from strangers. You see, Vinicio has a rare genetic disorder that has left him covered from head to toe in growths and swellings and itchy sores. He knows what it's like for people not to want to be by him. He's grown up like that. In fact, most people don't even know him as Vinicio. Most people simply refer to him as the disfigured man. So what do Magic Johnson and Vinicio Riva have in common? Well, to some degree, they're, they're both unclean. They're people who are on the fringe, whether it's from a midlife diagnosis or whether it's from a genetic disorder that's been there since birth. There are people, they are people who have been isolated from the people who surround them. When people see them, they stay away because what, the, what, if, what if you come into contact with them and you suddenly might catch what they have? Well, we can't take that risk, so, so barriers get put up. Barriers that separate them from everyone else. As you read through the Bible, especially as you read through the Old Testament, you might read through these, these laws and instructions about what to do with unclean or sick or diseased people in the community. And then as you kind of trickle on into the New Testament, you see a lot of those, those laws and instructions uh, still being executed in, in full force. Uh, but before we as modern and enlightened people come down too harshly thinking that the Bible is simply casting these people aside as a form of bullying, what we have to remember is that when the Bible is talking about what to do with diseased people in terms of kind of sending them outside of the community, we have to remember that they didn't have antibacterial hand soaps. They didn't, they didn't have sterile doctor's offices. Uh, the simplest medication that we probably take for granted today It was hundreds and hundreds of years from even being invented. Uh, Sicknesses, diseases, ailments that today we we might know to be not contagious were probably considered contagious at that time. And like I said, in the Bible and biblical times, they weren't pushing these people out of the community in order to isolate them as a form of punishment or something else. They simply did it as a way to maintain public health. Right, One infected or diseased person in the community could infect the entire community. 
And it could be devastating. And so people who had diseases were put on the outside of the community until their disease was cured or healed. But if that disease was never cured or healed or cleaned up, those people were removed. They were on the fringe. They were isolated. And barriers were put up. And this morning we're going to read about a woman who had been isolated. She's had those barriers put up. So I invite you to uh, follow along with me from the Gospel of Luke. It's uh, on your flow sheets. It's also on the screen behind me. Uh, It comes to us from Luke chapter 8. And we'll start at verse 42 this morning. This is God's word. It says, As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, And immediately her bleeding stopped. Uh, Let's stop there for just a second. So what do we know about this woman? Right? We we know that she has a a physical disability, right? We know that she has been bleeding for twelve years. She's been bleeding internally, and and I think that we can only imagine what sort of physical effect that had on her body. But I wonder, or I think that even more than that, that physical uh, disability, that physical bleeding that she had, the social isolation that she felt must have been equally as painful. Uh, first, we know as a woman in Palestinian society at this time, she already had a relatively low social standing. But then to add a physical disease like this to cause her to be a public health concern and then remove her from her community had to be painful. But, but then to make, to make matters worse, if, if the physical and the social isolation weren't bad enough, we read that no one was able to cure her. Uh, another version of the story in one of the other gospels said that she has spent everything she has looking for a cure. Uh, meaning that whether, whether she had hired the best doctors of the time, which she probably couldn't because only the the richest and the elitist of society could afford them, or whether she had been scammed by the quacks and the fraud artists that ran around at that time uh, preying on the naive and needy public, well, whatever the case was, her outcome was still the same. She's still bleeding. She's still socially isolated. And she's materially impoverished. It seems like there's just barriers everywhere. But maybe even more than that, more than the physical, the social, and the material, in her Jewish culture, she was also religiously isolated. Because according to these Old Testament laws, specifically ones found in Leviticus 15, she needed to be removed from the community because she was ritually Unclean. She couldn't even go to the temple to worship anymore because even though her hemorrhaging was not contagious, her ritual condition was. With her coming into contact with anyone else would have made them unclean as well. Physical, social, material, and religious. Barriers went up everywhere for this woman. And so I wonder this morning, 
I wonder how many of us here know what it's like to have those sort of barriers go up that separate us from other people. And there are hundreds of ways this plays out, right? Uh, Maybe you're just a simple Iowa farm boy who is constantly mocked by elitist Grand Rapidians because you're just learning about modern plumbing and electricity. (laughs) Maybe you... Maybe you're not from here. Maybe you've come from a different country and you speak a different language and so you have an accent that makes it hard for you to understand people and for other people to understand you. You know, maybe, maybe you've just moved back into this area and you've left behind friends and social contexts and, and networks and you sort of find yourself kind of as a, a fish out of water here. You know, maybe, maybe it's the color of your skin or the house that you live in, or the part of town you live in, or the the sort of car you drive. Uh, Maybe it's at school you used to hang out with a certain group of friends, but now all of a sudden those friends want nothing to do with you and you just can't understand why they're putting you on the outside. And the barriers go up everywhere. Maybe you heard that uh, story a a week or two ago about uh, the KFC that that asked the little girl who had just been attacked by a, a pit bull uh, to leave because her scarred and bandaged face was too much for the other customers to see. You know, I just, I just read a story about a little boy in Northern California, uh, and he has a, a neurodevelopmental disorder that, that causes him to process things just a little bit differently, and sometimes it makes him act just a little bit more uniquely. And the other kids can smell that, like blood in the water, Right? His mom's recorded uh, in the story and she says, there are times that the kids would not even play with him because of who he is and because he has this imaginary touch. And then in addition, they go around and they poke each other and they give the other kid the touch too. And then mind you, every time they poke each other, it's prefaced with his name. For example, one kid pokes the other and says, I just gave you the Johnny touch. Right? It's... Barriers, barriers, barriers. It kind of makes you wonder where the woman in the story then even found the courage to try to go find Jesus. You would think that after years of all these barriers and all of these things that have just left her isolated, that she would have simply just lost hope and said, what, what chances could there be? But this woman... She's heard of this Jesus. She's heard of how this, this Jesus has, has been in the area going about and healing people. She's heard about people referring to this man as the Messiah, the one who is going to save the people. So there was something inside of her that said, you have to go. You have to see this man. And so at the risk of spreading her ritual uncleanness to this whole group of people, and to maybe even Jesus himself, she, she joins in with the mob and she goes to see Jesus. And so we pick up the story in verse 45. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Isn't that something? There, 
there is a crowd there that is determined to be near Jesus. And out of all these people, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Well, Jesus, take a look around. It could have been any one of the 5,000 people who are next to you, who are grabbing for you, who are trying to be near you. Take your pick. There are people everywhere. But Jesus says, no. Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Uh, Whether you lived through it, or maybe you've seen some YouTube footage of it, I think that I could safely assume that when I say the phrase Beatlemania, a lot of you might know what I'm talking about. And uh, Beatlemania went wherever John, Paul, George, or Ringo went to. And Beatlemania was a lot more than just lining up to buy the Beatles' latest record or to try to get a pair of concert tickets to go see them. Beatlemania was hysteria, right? Beatlemania was girls screaming at the top of their lungs, girls uh, like trying to rip the clothes off of their backs. It was concert workers carrying out people who had passed out just from the excitement of getting to see the Beatles. It was, it was mobs of people running down the streets, chasing after their limousines, trying to see them. It was, uh, it's, it's police officers uh, linked arm to arm forming a human barrier to try to protect the Beatles from these mobs of people that would swarm around them, possibly even crushing them as they came in. Part of the, the Beatlemania, maybe the not so known part of it, was that in the midst of it throughout the 60s, uh, parents would start bringing in their kids who had sicknesses or ailments or, or diseases with the hope that if their kid could just touch one of the beetles, that they would had, that they could be healed. That these parents held this belief that, that just a touch could bring healing. That there was some sort of power that the beetles had in and of themselves that would cure their child of whatever was ailing them. And as you read the story of the bleeding woman, you kind of wonder the same thing. Like, was she maybe thinking like those parents who brought their kids to the Beatles concerts that, that maybe if she could just touch Jesus, that maybe he possessed something inherently that would heal her? In the story here, it mentions that she touches his cloak. And, and in the Gospel of Matthew, who also records the sermon, uh, he has her recorded, recorded as actually saying, if I could just touch the edge of his garment. And I gotta let you know, there, there might be a little something to that curious little phrase, touching the edge of his cloak. You see, Jewish people would uh, wear this, this garment and it was called a prayer shawl. It was kind of a square rectangular blanket and on each of the four corners, there were these tassels that would hang off of it. Uh, it. It's a tradition that came out of an Old Testament text in the book of Numbers. Uh, it comes out of Numbers 15. It's, it's on the screen. It says this, throughout, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. 
And then you will remember to obey all the commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Uh, So the Jewish people would wear this garment with, with the tassels on each corner as a way to remember who God was, remember what he had done. He was a God who brought them out of bondage and brought them into freedom, brought them into a promised land. He was a God who gave them a whole new way of living so that they could flourish in this new land that they were going to. And so the Jewish people would wear this prayer shawl, this garment with tassels on each corner as a way to remember who God was. And then if you take that little tidbit, that little scripture there, and combine it with this text that came out of Malachi about the Messiah that was to come. It's Malachi 4 verse 2, which said, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. Wings, uh, tassels, the corners of the prayer shawl. Maybe this woman knew these two texts. Maybe she knew that this possible coming Messiah would have healing in the wings or the tassels of the garment that he would wear. And so with whatever reason she reached out, she does reach out and she touches the edge, she touches the tassel and miraculously she's healed. But a lot like the parents who brought their kids to the Beatles concerts with the hope that maybe there would be healing in the Fab Four, don't you kind of wonder if that woman had that sort of same superstitious belief that maybe these two random Old Testament texts paired together might actually bring healing? So was it just, was it a superstitious hope or was it not? What was the difference what, in what she did? We read on. Verse 47. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at Jesus' feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Do me a favor this morning. Circle the word, uh, the phrase, she told why. She told why. You see, Jesus knew exactly who had touched him. And Jesus knew exactly the reason why this woman had touched him. And he knew that it was more than just a superstitious belief that maybe him as the Messiah would hold some sort of supernatural power. But he needed her to say it. He needed her to let everyone else know why she did what she did. Did he do it to embarrass her? You know, as if I would ask, you know, one of you to stand up right now and give your Christian testimony in front of all these people? Did he do it as a way to maybe ridicule her? How could you, an unclean woman, uh, touch me, a ceremonially clean rabbi? No. He did it because he needed her to say it and to rule out any other interpretation for what she had done except for one. And that one reason that she did it, it was because it was a genuine act of faith and belief in who he was 
and what he came to do. Jesus did not come to simply perform a few miracles and to heal a few people along the way. Jesus came about to bring complete and total human wholeness and cosmic restoration. After, after his diagnosis, uh, Magic Johnson would show up at the gym day after day after day, laces tied, uh, ready and willing to play anyone who was looking to play a pickup game of basketball. But, of course, in those early days of HIV, no one dared to play with him with the fear that if, if his sweat got on them, that they would also be infected with HIV. And so Magic was left to simply work out by himself. And day after day, he'd work out by himself until one day, in walks a guy named uh, Ronnie Cycli. Uh, at the time, Ronnie Cycli was a, uh, a center for the Miami Heat, and he happened to be in Los Angeles, Los Angeles at the time because he was recovering uh, from an injury. And as he, as he walked into the gym for a workout, he saw Magic Johnson uh, playing, uh, working out by himself, and so Ronnie walked up to him and asked if, if they could play. And before you knew it, the two guys were engaged in this like full out, full combat, uh, intensive game, full bore, one-on-one. Uh, and even though Magic Johnson crushed Ronnie Cycli, because he's still Magic Johnson, by the way, Magic Johnson was just happy to have someone who was willing to bump up against him and sweat on him. And he was even more thrilled that Ronnie Cycli would let, let him do the same thing. And, and whether Ronnie Cycli knew it or not, he crossed a massive social barrier that day and brought in healing. Vinicio Riva boarded that bus in northern Italy that morning because he was taking a trip down to the Vatican City to hopefully catch a glimpse of the Pope. And as uh, him and his group got off the bus in Vatican City and started walking to where uh, a, a group was gathering to see the Pope, the, the Swiss guard that was there uh, ushered him and his aunt and their group further and further and further forward until they finally found themselves within an arm's length of where Pope Francis himself was going to walk. And when the Pope came out, he walked right up to Venecia Riva and grabbed him and embraced him. Uh, Venecio's aunt uh, she said, when he came close to us, I thought that maybe he would just give me his hand. Instead, he went straight to Venicio and embraced him tightly. I thought he wasn't going to give him back to me because he held on so tightly. Remember, Venicio is a guy who's used to people just staring and gawking at him and, and never coming up to him. And so you got to imagine his hesitation when like, the Pope comes right up to him and grabs him. And, and Venicio said, he wasn't afraid of my illness at all. He just grabbed me and embraced me without saying a single word. That one bold gesture was something that very few people in Venecia Riva's life had ever done for him. When Pope Francis grabbed him and embraced him, he crossed massive barriers and he ushered in healing. The story of Jesus healing this bleeding woman 
has much less to do with her physical healing and it has everything to do with her spiritual healing. That's what Jesus did for her and that's what Jesus does for us because we are all in desperate need of spiritual healing. And it's only Jesus who can bring in that that spiritual healing that leads to complete human wholeness. It's it's this Jesus who rolls up his sleeves and he gets, he gets into the mess of the world. He gets into the physical and the social and the material and the spiritual mess that sin and brokenness has brought into this place and he welcomes us to reach out and he heals us. It's, it's this Jesus who comes along beside us. It's this Jesus who who was clean and pure and innocent and who yet went out and made himself unclean for us, for this broken world. It's it's this Jesus who made himself an enemy of God so that we could become children of God. It's Jesus who, who walks along beside us in all of our hurts and our trials and our ailments and our estrangements And he welcomes us to reach out our trembling, fearful, maybe even sometimes misguided hands to touch him. And he heals us. That's what Jesus does for us. It leaves me to wonder this morning. It leaves me to wonder then, what are the barriers that that we put up that prevent us from receiving that healing touch of Jesus. I invite you to, to stand up where you are uh, so, I can, so I can pray for you um, in this upcoming week. Uh, God, we, we can call you healer because that's what you are. Uh, Lord, you bring us healing from our spiritual states by, by taking on our sin and our brokenness and the brokenness of the world. And God, and you, you wipe it out. So God, as, as we leave this place, uh, help us to reflect on the barriers that we might put up that prevent us from receiving your healing touch. And God, whatever those barriers are, uh, may we recognize them and may we, may we take them down and ask for your help in taking them down. God, thank you for the grace that you give us by ushering in healing for our broken world, God. And, and God, fill us with the hope that um, even in light of the brokenness we still see around us, that it is not the victor and that you, Lord, are the healer and restorer of this world. God, we pray this in your name. Amen.